So uh, today as we continue in our study of love, um, we understand or will first look at the fact that it's strange. Uh, Love is a strange thing. And that's because reality is strange. Uh, Nothing that we see around us is when we come to know how it works was anything that we expected. Uh, One of the things that I can show you the reality of that is in the the thing that makes for life, makes life possible uh, in the world, which is water. As uh, most of you know, uh, water is made, if not all of you, Uh, of hydrogen, uh, two hydrogens and one oxygen. So water is H2O. Uh, I don't know if you can, I I figured you can't see it. But there there you see oxygen there. It's right in this part of the uh, periodic table, which you remember from high school, right? Which you're like, oh, I loved it. Loved chemistry in high school. Uh, The thing about oxygen is, and I'll move over and... And, and get this for you, is that oxygen has uh, one, two, three, three, four. Yeah, I figured this wasn't going to work. So let's try this. One, two, three. I, this is what I said, you know, practice this before you do this. So those little messes are uh, electrons. <laughs> And uh, so those two, there's four of them there, uh, and the four electrons uh, that on oxygen kind of sit on one side of the atom. This is really true. So there's two sets or two pairs of electrons that kind of sit over there on the side by themselves. They're not bonded to anybody. And the other two electrons bond with the hydrogen there and there. Wow, that's terrible, but there you go. So the whole point of this is that uh, water, H2O, is bent, right? It's bent. Now, if I go back and go back to this, let me erase all of this. No, not that. There you go. Uh, Anyway, water is bent. It's not like this. Water is not like straight. Now, if water were straight like that, and those little electrons were there and there, and so those are on opposite sides, right? If the electrons were there, water would be a gas. And at room temperature, at one atmosphere of pressure, that's where you're at right now. You're at about 71 degrees in here and one atmosphere of pressure. If you open up the tap, it doesn't come out as a gas. It comes out as water. If water is straight like that and not bent, then it's not sticky and it's a gas. Like carbon dioxide is straight like that and it's a gas. If water is a gas, there's no life on Earth. So it turns out that on oxygen, the fact that two of its sets of electrons are actually on the same side instead of opposite sides makes life possible. So four electrons, which you can't see, never knew of, didn't really care, and maybe you still don't. But if they weren't on the same side of the oxygen molecule, there's no life on Earth at all. Nothing would live here. So the point to that is that um, as you go from 
uh, fairy tales to reality, you find that things get strange. When I say fairy tales, right, we draw like molecules or atoms like little circles and we imagine that cells and all the things, how things work, you know, stars out there in the universe are all just like little, you know, pinpoints of light and everything from a distance at least looks pretty simple. Even looking at the earth from a distance, like from the moon, uh, it makes it look like everything down here is just fine and easy, but it's not. Uh, and this is what makes growing from childhood to adulthood so difficult. It's a transition from your fairy tale life to reality. We try to teach this to our kids, right? We try to teach them and train them for reality. And they don't really believe us at all until they're in it. And uh, it's only then that most of us come to understand it. One of the per, uh, most pervasive realities of life has to be love. Because everybody loves. But just like, you know, we, we, when we think of love, say we see it in a movie or we read it in a poem or a sonnet or in a story, I think, you know, that's love, right? Love is simple. But like that water molecule, things are not as simple as they look. Um, <clears throat> for a lot of people, they think love is simple. And really what they're talking about is Eros love. But even when they find out, let's say they fall in love with someone or they love, you know, something that they can't have, as they, as they learn this, they find out that love is, actually has a lot of complications to it. God's love is the only source of original love because with him it's original. With us, out of creation, uh, love is not original with us. No one, no human being has originated love. Yet, we prefer to keep things simple. And by keeping things simple, we don't come to understand how things work. And that becomes very important. If, if you don't know that those electrons on oxygen, you couldn't really call yourself a chemist, actually. Is, and I have a degree in chemistry, but... And it goes far deeper than that, but that's kind of like the beginning. We teach that to kids in high school, you know, electron structures. But, you know, even in that, things get really complex the further you get into the science. And when it comes to something like love, it gets really complex as you delve into it. If we oversimplify God's love, and because, because why? Because we want it simple. We just want it to be simple. And that's why uh, my title is Love's Not a Toaster. And what I, the, I don't know why I thought of this, but a toaster is a simple device. Um, I am a particular fan of toast. I make my own bread, and my, the toast that comes from my homemade bread is just awesome. I look forward to it. It's whole wheat, so I try to keep it as healthy as possible. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, and I have a bread machine, so I just throw the ingredients in there and hit one button, and in four hours I have a beautiful loaf of bread. Uh, I don't know how that bread machine works, and I don't really care, just as long as it gives me the bread I want. Now, when I put the bread into the toaster, it toasts it. I crank it all the way up, and it toasts it perfectly. I figured that out after a few trial and error runs, that if I go all the way with homemade bread... It makes it perfect. So, uh, you know, what, why am I using toaster as an analogy? A toaster is a simple device that doesn't take up a lot of room on your counter. 
It doesn't make any noise. It doesn't bother you. And when you need it, it works. When you don't need it, you just leave it there. Right? Shove it in the corner. That's where mine is. Way in the back corner. You know, it's just off the counter, way in the back. Right? That's what people do with love. I think it's a great analogy, actually. We say, well, you know, we want it simple. We don't want it bothering us too much. But when we need it, we want it to work precisely the way we expect it. And we don't really need it that often. I mean, nobody eats toast like ten times a day. Once a day, once a month, you know, who knows? We just want it when we want it. And if that's the approach we take to God's love, we'll never learn it. You know, for us, water is just water. It's a liquid. Of course it's a liquid. (laughs) We don't really care unless you get into chemistry and you figure out, you know, molecular geometry, which is the bent shape that... That angle there is 104 degrees. Uh, That's been measured. We know it. um, And uh, and a a water molecule. uh, But for most of us, it doesn't really matter. As long as water is a liquid, we live. That's fine. But when it comes to God's love, it really does matter. Because what's, what's on the line here is that we won't learn it. We won't use it. It becomes love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't brag, doesn't boast, right? Is not arrogant. That you know, we could even memorize that and say, well, you know, it's almost like poetic. It's a poem. It's nice, but what do the words mean? You know, what does it mean that love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't boast, love isn't arrogant? What do those things mean? What do those words really mean? And I'm not going to really understand them unless I dive into it. And I mean far deeper than at an academic level. That I myself have to be kind. And then there's another word, kindness, that the whole world knows. And the whole world thinks it understands. But does the world really understand what kindness is? And what we're talking about there is God's kindness. We would prefer love to be simple. We can see this in the fact that most of the population wants religion to be simple. And why does, why does the population want religion to be simple? Because they don't really want it. It's like the toaster. They want it when it's convenient. And other than that, they don't want to worry about it. That's what people want religion to be, so they make it simple. They want it to sit there on the counter and not make any noise. So say this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. It is no good asking for a simple religion. After all, real things are not simple. They look simple, but they are not. The table I am sitting at looks simple. But ask a scientist to tell you what it is really made of about all the atoms and how the light waves rebound from them and hit my eye and what they do to the optic nerve and what that optic nerve does to my brain. And, of course, you find that what we call seeing a table lands you in mysteries and complications which you can hardly get to the end of. If we ask for something more than simplicity, it is silly then to complain that the something more is not simple. 
Besides being complicated, reality, in my experience, is usually odd. It is not neat, not obvious, not what you expect. And there he uses the example of the planet. And once you discover, if you discover, all right, the Earth is the third planet that orbits around the sun, and there are, I'm going to include Pluto here because I've always been a fan. It's not a mini planet, or they call it a dwarf planet now. But <clears throat> you would assume all the other planets, the other eight planets, would be the same size as Earth. They would orbit from the same distance, and that's what we expect. But when we look at them, they're at different distances, different sizes. One has a ring. Actually, two have a ring around it. Uranus has a, sorry, I'm supposed to say, <laughs> you're supposed to say Uranus now uh, instead of Uranus. When I teach it to Maggie, I teach her Uranus because it's funny. Uh, there's a ring around that one. There's a ring around Saturn, right? They're all different. They're different colors. They're made of different things. It's not what we would expect. So he says, reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. This is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered you just the kind of universe that we had always expected, I should feel we are making it up. But in fact, it's not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It has just the queer twist about it that real things have. So let us leave behind all the boys' philosophies, these over-simple answers. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simple either. And that's so very true, because in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, and we're going to start in Isaiah 55. You go to Isaiah 55. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, love is and what love is not might appear simple on the surface when some person reads maybe they could read it in a card or on a piece of needlework or something you know love is kind love is patient and they would say well of course it is you know love is kind love is patient of course but if all they know is human love or what we know is eros love it's that's all they know they don't really understand what those words mean, not as they were written by the Apostle Paul. They don't understand them at all. They saw the words in the context of their own world, and this we must avoid. We must avoid seeing God's word in the context of our own world, meaning earth. The, these words come from heaven. The Word of God is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. This is why it demands faith. The Word of God comes from heaven. It's not of the earth. What human beings have done, even in Christianity, even in the church, is to make heaven earth. In other words, we have made heaven into earth and said, like we closed with on Sunday, when Jesus said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And he furthered that with, when you're drinking the old wine, you figure to yourself the old wine is good enough. When we make heaven into earth, by taking these words that describe love and just put them in the context of human love and say that's good enough, it's the same as the old wine. But it's not even close. And as Jesus said, we can get used to the to the taste. We grow used to the taste of the old. And we must throw that aside. We must discover how the words on the page become a reality in our hearts. 
And then we must soberly face that reality and make a decision. It, it really is difficult to do. Meaning overcoming yourself and your biases. To face the Word of God and faith says, I have to do what it says and not compromise it. That's a sober look at the Word of God and face it. Face its reality in our hearts and then make a decision. So we start in Isaiah 55. Let's pray after my exceedingly long introduction. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to uh, look into, and not so much love is today, but we're going to get back to that starting tomorrow, I would think. But we're going to look at how the words on the page become the reality in our hearts. That's what today is about. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that in your word you describe for us what is love. You describe for us in your word who you are. As much as we can understand it, Father, it is related there, there on the pages of Scripture. We must not alter it because it is from an, another world. And to alter it to make it human, to make it earthly, is to rob it of all its power. Words should be more than words. There's meaning to them. There's meaning to the word agape. There's meaning to the word patience and kindness. May we see them, Father, through your Spirit, so that we may, each of us, be truly enlightened, and then we can make our decisions as whether we're going to walk in love or not. You will judge each one of us on that decision. May we not judge one another and make our own decisions with great strength and clarity. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start by reminding ourselves about faith, particularly what makes for strong faith. And it's not, <clears throat> out of all the places that I think strong faith comes from, like, you, you can be awed by the Word of God. You know, you, if the Word of God is just incredible. And if you see it as such, when you read it, just on your own, or you hear it in Bible class, it can have such a great impact on you. And there, it strengthens your faith. The action of God in your life will strengthen your faith. The answer to prayers will strengthen your faith. So there's, there's quite a few, I would say, I don't know how many there are, sources of faith. And I mean of strong faith. All, all believers have faith. I mean, actually, every member of the human race has faith. They put their faith in something. But believers, all believers have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then they're made new creatures in Christ. And now having that divine nature... Uh, the new creature has the ability through God the Holy Spirit to believe things that he could have never understood before. And, and now we're, we're set up uh, in Christ to have a faith in things that the world can't see. And that is a challenge to each of us. And one of the places that strong faith comes from is fear. Look at Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the, and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So that, that first stanza there speaks of the fact that we should seek him while he may be found. And for us, and I would think even in, for Isaiah, while he may be found is before you're dead. Not that he can't be found. You know, if you're a believer, you're in heaven in his presence. But uh, the context here are those who are being disciplined by the Lord, which would fit the context of Isaiah's letter, or letter of his enormous book, I should say. But uh, the wicked have to forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and they repent. You know, returning to the Lord means repent, and the God promises that he will have compassion on him. And so if we have found ourselves astray, that's what we do. We confess and return to the Lord and we will be abundantly pardoned and find the Lord's compassion. And then God says here, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. So earth, and heaven, there's ways to the earth and there's ways to heaven. And the ways of heaven, the ways of heaven are far, far higher than the ways of earth. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, water cycle, <coughs> so will my word with, by Sorry, so will my word be, with, be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out, and here's the promise now. So in that next stanza, we have the fact that God's ways are higher, yet God sent his ways in his word to the earth. And one of those ways is love, agape love. And God and those words that describe love are what we've been studying. And so God says this love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't brag, love isn't arrogant, doesn't seek itself, and so on are words that come from heaven that have a meaning of heaven that is far, far higher than anything that the earth could define it as. And so when human beings say, well, I know what kindness is, and I know what arrogance is, or I know what humility is, and they don't really because it is from God. And a lot of Christians will claim to know what they don't know. And the reason being, they want Christianity to be like a toaster or some other appliance. They want to use it when it's convenient, and then they want it to they want it to, to leave them alone for the rest of the time. Whereas <clears throat> to understand this, we have to put our heart and soul by faith. And there's there's something. Uh, there, there's several things, but I I think there's uh, it is very foundational. There is something that is going to cause a believer to force themselves to believe. In other words, uh, and I know God gives us faith, so I, I hope you didn't get too overly theological on me here, but that <clears throat> uh, there's a way in which, and God does it, by which we look at what we're supposed to do. The commandments of God, the ways of God, really love here, 
Paul, in our passage where love is, uh, you know, it's not a commandment, but we're commanded to love. We're, we're commanded to be like the Lord, and therefore we're commanded to be all that is stated of love in this passage. And there's, <clears throat> there's something that God is going to give us that will, that will cause us to say to ourselves, with tremendous motivation, in fact, that I have to do those things. And even if I fail, like the beginning of this passage says, I'll return to the Lord and find compassion, but I have to. I have to do it. So the promise is, once the Word of God, if it has its effect on you that God has, has sent it to the earth to, to do, in verse 12, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth with shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. It will be a memorial to the Lord, an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. And so here at the end, its prosperity is promised. And prosperity for us is not material. We're not promised material, but we're promised a prosperity of soul. So if, each of, if any of us or someone reads this as nice poetry and says it's nothing more or doesn't think it's anything more, then the, the, whole, the impact of this incredible passage is lost upon them. And that must not be. There's a lot of imagery here, right? The Word of God, God's will, God's Word, God's message is, is likened to the water cycle, which in itself is incredibly complex. Um, and, 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 you know, that uh, the prosperity in our hearts is likened to trees clapping their hands for us. I mean, we're, that's not a reality. It's an image. And if it just remains, you know, an image on paper, if it just remains poetry, it just remains a real nice passage, and it's not a reality in me, then this incredible message is lost. And the incredible message of what love is, is lost. Just lost. And we must not let it pass by. I mean, when are we going to study this passage again? I, I mean, I don't know but it won't be soon. Now, when, are, when are these words going to come by again? When is this going to present itself to you? It's not me teaching it to you. It's God. The Holy Spirit is teaching it to you. And when's the next time he's going to teach it to you, to me? And the way we make it a reality, in a way that we don't forget what it is, is by faith, to put our faith in it and apply it. Now, one of the sources that is not super obvious about faith is something that's also not simple. Again, love is not an appliance on the counter. Faith grows out of fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is standing in his awesome and mighty presence. If we stand in the awesome and mighty presence of God and we are not shaking, quivering, feeling like we should bow down, then we haven't really gotten it, which, you know, is, God is patient. That's another thing. And uh, being patient, he will lead you to that place. And that's part of the journey. Like God was patient with the Exodus generation going through Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. 
He's going to be patient with us. And he will put into our lives. He's sovereign in this way. He's going to do the things. That's why you, why you experience life the way that you do. This is why the things happen in your life the way that they do. God is teaching you his way. God is teaching you his love. And none of, there's not one of us who don't resist it. And that's why we all have to go through the wilderness. But for some of us, we have to go through it for a long, long time. Israel should have been in the promised land in less than a year. But it took them 40 years and the whole first generation died except for two people in the wilderness. And so, what didn't they have? Why were they so long in the wilderness? Did they fear the Lord? Mm -mm, They did not. Faith grows strong out of a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is standing in his awesome and mighty presence. And you don't have to know too much about God to know that he is almighty and all-powerful and should be ultimately feared. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of learning. That's Proverbs 1.7. The book of Proverbs opens with this. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of learning and the vehicle of faith that has strength in reliance and in obedience. Why must I obey? Because I fear Him. So, and, and we all kind of wonder about this, right? And I still do too. I, I don't know what words to put it in to make the definition of the fear of the Lord just kind of sing, uh, you know, be awesome in kind of one short, concise definition. It takes a lot of words to describe it. The fear of the Lord is, yes, and it's usually described as reverence. It's usually described as being in awe, but I think it's more than that. I mean, are there other words for reverence and awe used in the scripture that could be used other than the word fear? And the word fear used is the Greek word phobos, phobos, or we use say phobos, uh, where we get phobia from. It means fear. It means to fear things that we should fear. And however, you know, there's a bit change here between the Old Testament and New, and that's true, but it's used in both Testaments. So let's look at it a bit. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We certainly are not afraid of God that being in his presence is going to melt us in some way, that we won't approach him, that we want to hide. You know, kind of like Adam and Adam and Eve in the garden, that we actually approach him with boldness. But if we don't have a fear of the Lord, we'll see it first in the Old Testament and, and then in the New. We fear the Lord and we worship the Lord. That means we draw near. But we draw near with a hearty respect and awe of him and a fear of the consequences of not following him. And I think that has a lot to do with it, too. Because that's the way God really puts it to Israel. So let's look at it here. Look at uh, Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now Israel, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God 
and walk in all his ways and love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Right? So there's the Shema's repeated Hero Israel worship. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. Uh, and that's in Deuteronomy 6. It's repeated here, but now with the fear of the Lord. And now, and, and not love the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul. Verse 13, and keep the commandment, keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet your fathers, yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So stiff neck means stubbornness. Stiffened heart means stubbornness. It means pride. And, and what is said here uh, in Deuteronomy, and this is Moses' message to the people before they crossed the Jordan, and you know, it's at the end of the 40 years. You know, it's the, the 40 years in the wilderness have completed. They're on the verge of crossing into the promised land, and this is Moses' message to them that as they go in, they need to heed. And the Lord is what? You know, why should we fear the Lord? Well, this is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And in our day and age, with the science that we have, we know how unbelievably enormous the universe is and how much stuff is in it. And yet, God, with a word, made it. And so, do we really see Him for the enormity, the absolute awesome power that He is? And if we just kind of trifle that by saying, well, the Lord loves me, so I don't have to fear any of that. And, you know, that's true. I think you're, you're looking at the word fear there, if you define it that way, is not in the right context of the Scripture. But to toss fear of the Lord aside completely and to just be, you know, uh, in a way you're chummy with God and you're like, like he's, you know, your buddy, and, uh, you know, it's like you're kind of friends and all of that. Well, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. But if the fear of the Lord is absent from our lives, then, you know, all of us have to, you know, understand why, how that is going to affect our walk with God in our Christianity. And I think for each of us, as hard as the fear of the Lord is to define, because for us, fear means to be afraid of something that's like going to kill us or hurt us. And God's not going to do that. That it becomes an issue of us, you know, in our own souls, discerning what is in his word. And not just the phrase of the fear of the Lord, but you know what, what does that mean in the context of every place that it's used? And what does it mean here in the context here of Israel? What does God demand of Israel? That he, that he is saying, fear me. Fear me means has this result of action. And what does the Lord require of you? Follow my commands. 
keep, that's verse 13, keep the Lord's commandments and statutes, which I'm commanding you today, for your good. And that's an, uh, important to remember that it's because these commandments are not for our bad. They're not just put upon us willy-nilly by God to see if we'll do what he does or what he says, but to actually be blessed. So he says, verse 16, Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. I am not a man, and you cannot bribe me. Right? You can't make deals with me. So God, I'll do this and you do this for me. No, I don't make deals. God, you like me more than you like others, right? So I can get away with it. No, I don't show partiality. God said to Israel, if you do this, if you go into the promised land and end up doing the same things of the, that the people there were doing, I will kick you out just like I'm kicking them out. I don't show partiality. But notice the words that God is described with. Great, mighty, awesome. God of gods, Lord of lords. Do we not see him this way? It's important that we do. So that when we see these words, love is, we say to ourselves, we have to do them. And if I'm not doing them, I have to find out how to do them. And what's stopping me from doing them? One of the things that the fear of the Lord teaches me is to look into my life with and see the obstacles there that are hindering my complete commitment to him and removing them. And I know some of them are very hard to remove. Believe me, I know. But believe me, I also know that with God and some perseverance, you can do it. Anybody can do it. And I say perse- the perseverance is needed not because God is waiting for you to work or to earn it. It's because we're so weak. And it takes our perseverance to truly get it. Verse 18, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, show your love for the alien, for, the, and for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. What, why does this go here? It's because... God has told them, as he's told us, be gracious and give and lend and expect nothing in return. And God says, look, I am gracious. I saved you from being an alien. No, we weren't Jews in Egypt, but we were unbelievers. And Ephesians 2 says we were alienated from God. That we were enemies of God, sons of disobedience, but God delivered us. Should we now turn around and not love the alien? So we have the word love here in verse 18. He shows love for the alien. Should we also? And this is Jesus takes this to the level of heaven when he repeats basically the same thing. And he says, love your enemies. For I, God, am kind to the ungrateful, to the undeserving. And then he tells us, so you be kind. You see how God here tells them, don't forget where you came from, he says to us as well. And here, we, if we don't have fear of the Lord, we go, eh, pfft. 
really? Don't I have eternal life? It doesn't matter, right? I just live by grace. I do whatever the heck I want. And you'll, you'll learn the fear of the Lord the hard way, that way. But you will learn it. So verse 20, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. He is your praise and He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. And again, it, the context is the fear of the Lord. These great and awesome things are for not for us only to be, hey, God, thank you for doing those great and awesome things. And you know what? Those great miracles you do are really awesome and uh, impressive. But the one who can do such things should be the one to whom we have a true and hearty respect and fear. And then God says, finally, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons and all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And as they are on the shores of the Jordan, that's what they are. Probably about two, two maybe more million people. The fear of the Lord <clears throat> there, where does this come from? Well, it comes from learning God's word because you can't fear the Lord without seeing the Lord. You have to see him for who he is. And in that way, you have to keep returning to the Lord. You know, no, even Israel, they saw miracles, but not all of them feared the Lord. I mean, it's amazing to us to think that this, in, this enormous group of people walked through the Red Sea after they saw ten plagues in Egypt, and they walked through the Red Sea and watched the Red Sea envelop and, and destroy their enemies, the greatest army in the world at the time, which was the Egyptian army, and then you know stand there on the opposite shore delivered without a scratch. And then, I think it's only three days later that they're complaining to the Lord. And it's hard to understand. You know, if, if you had seen that, when you say, well, the Lord destroyed my enemies, if I start complaining against this Lord, this God, is he going to destroy me? Like, there's no respect at all. Hence, fear also means respect. So, we have to see the Lord. You and I are not going to see miracles like Red Sea. We're not going to see it. The only place we're going to see the Lord is in his word. So, as we learn... We have to understand that faith says the Word of God is inerrant, it's eternal, it's inspired by God, and it's sufficient. Sufficient means I need nothing else. God's Word must be obeyed no matter what. And that is the proper response to it. We must love with agape and not alter it because we cannot, because we cannot alter it. As, uh, as I understand, uh, for there's, there's always a situation in which where we learn what agape love is. And then some, God puts, well, maybe already been there, somebody in our life, our life where we say, <clears throat> if we love that person with this, what God says, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that I should give to that evil person 
that kind of treatment. And then, so what do we do? Well, instead of fearing the Lord, we fear our conscience. See, conscience says, I can't do that to that person. It's just not right. They don't deserve it. They're evil. What are they going to do with my compassion? What are they going to do with my kindness? They're going to spit on it. And then they're going to spit on me. And then they're going to laugh at me. And if anybody else sees me do it, they're going to laugh at me. And I'm going to look weak. And this is why the Greeks hardly ever use the word agape in their literature. Hardly ever. The first the first piece of literature that uses the word agape in any sense is the New Testament. Now, the Greeks were around for hundreds of years before the New Testament was written. I mean, that word agape has been around for a long, long time. They hardly ever used it. Because they thought it was weak. They didn't like being weak. And so when we see this demand to love, well, are we going to do it? Or are we going to do it to some? Are we going to do it as it should be? Or are we going to compromise it in a more earthly Eros way? Because Eros, everybody likes Eros. Everybody. Eros is Cupid, flying around with his little arrow. Right? Everybody wants Eros. They're fine with it. Even though we don't like doing it all the time, people are okay with it. Agape? Mm-mm. Agape is God's love. God so loved the world. God loved his enemies. God loved those who hated him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do as they're mocking him and uh, scolding him and insulting him while he's hanging on a cross for their sins. Go to Deuteronomy 17. The king of Israel was to write down his own copy of the scriptures. I wonder how many kings actually did this. It's in the law. In Deuteronomy 17, the king of Israel is to take under the direction of the priests to write out in his own hand the scriptures. So it's like someone saying, okay, you've been promoted and I'm going to give you a a ream of paper. It'll probably take you that much. And uh, you're going to write out the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, in your own hand. So first you're going to have to slowly read it and copy it. And then, after you've written it out, and this was the command to the king, that the king was to read from it every day. Notice verse 19. It, this copy of the scripture that the king wrote, shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So this kind of gets in the way of our, if any of you have a mind to make formulas and you want to say, well, what comes first? Do I learn and then I learn fear and, you know, I I want a procedure? Um, They kind of come hand in hand like so many things uh, from God. 
is that as we learn, we learn to fear. And when we have fear, we learn more. And when we learn more, we have more fear. And with all of this, faith grows. Because if I fear the Lord, I say to myself, I'm going to do it because I'm more afraid of Him than I am of you. I'm more afraid of Him than I am of the consequences. I'm more afraid of Him than I am of whatever circumstances I'm facing. I am going to follow the command of my Lord. You know, one of the things in, like, what, look at this with me. I'm running late anyway, so I might as well change it up. Go to John. Look at John 14. One of my uh, Greek translation exercises, I was translating this passage, John uh, 14, 21. And it, I don't know, for whatever reason, just because it was in Greek, it kind of stood out. One of the reasons it stands out in Greek, I think, is because Greek uses less words. English needs more words to translate Greek. And so, you know, it's kind of more succinct and words kind of stand out. But look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And this is what struck me. And I will love him. Just stop there. I think it says I'll disclose myself to him. Do you know the... So, one of the rewards, okay, if I keep... You can't get around the language here, right? Because theologically, it has some issues. He who has my commandments and keeps them. Now, that ain't, not all believers do that. He's not talking about salvation here, obviously. He's teaching the disciples. They're already saved. And he's teaching them, look, if you keep my commandments. Now, we just saw in these passages in Deuteronomy. That the one who fears me is the one who's going to keep my commandments. But Jesus doesn't mention fear here. Not that fear of the Lord isn't mentioned in the New Testament. It is. And you know, with my time here, we're going to have to spend some more time on this tomorrow. But he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and I will, and will disclose myself to him. When I read that, I thought to myself, you know, when I'm tempted to break a command, as I so often am, what if I remembered this? And there's a fear element here, is there not? At least there is to me. Do I want the Lord to love me? And then I stop and I say, come on now, man. You know, I know the theology that he loves me. And of course God loves me. But Jesus here is talking about something more. It's agape that's used here. Jesus is saying, look, your relationship with me. You keep my commands. You love me, you'll keep my commands. And I'll love you. And, you know, if you ask me, uh, you know, how is that different from the love that he has for the world? How is that different than the love that he has for every believer? I, I can't tell you. I, re- I mean, I, we can we could explore it together and write out all kinds of theologies about it, but 
I would rather not do that. Because by the time we get to the end of it, I don't think we're going to change all this. We, we could spend a year working on that doctrine and put it all together. We'd learn a lot doing it, for sure. But it wouldn't change these words. I love you, and I'll disclose myself to you. And then verse 23 is my favorite. So anyway, I'm here. This is, this is our clothes, uh, which is not in my notes. Judas, not Iscariot, thank you, John. Judas Iscariot is already gone. Said to him, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me. Right? See, now he's repeating it, but now he's going to say something else. He will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him. And make our home with him. Abode is home. Uh, so we'll make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. That verse 24. So <clears throat> there's a fear element here. There is. If I don't keep his word, keep his commandments, I'm going to miss out on living through life in a home built by the Father and the Son. Not that they don't love me. Not that I don't have eternal life. I have all of that. I can't lose it. But something I will lose in time is going through life in the home that they built. And in verse 21 and verse 23, he repeats the same thing, that if you love me, you'll keep my command. And in verse 21, he says, I'll love you. And so there's... a. I don't even know what to call it. It's just love. If he'll love, I don't even want to say love me more, right? Because then you, then you get into competition. That there's a love from the Son and a love from the Father as they build this home around your life. Because why? You keep his commands. It's pretty simple. But me keeping his commands is not a simple procedure for me at all. Neither is it for you. And we all understand that. And tying this back to, and tomorrow we'll see it in the New Testament, that the fear of the Lord is a key here to increasing our faith or giving strength to our faith. And I, I would, again, like I said, tie fear to this too. I fear not going, going, I fear going through life without that house built around me. Because if their house isn't built around me, then what is built around me? And I could only assume it's a house of my own making. How's that going to stand up? Speaking of a house that stands up, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus said, you hear these words of mine and you keep them. Keep them, meaning you obey my commands. You'll be a house built upon a rock. And when the storm and the winds come, your house will stand. If you hear these words of mine and don't keep them, you're the house built upon the sand and your house will fall. And perhaps, and that's a, that's a good way of looking at this passage, that Jesus here, he could be talking about the same house. 
This house that we've built is with the believer who keeps the commands of the Father and the Son because you love us. That's as simple as that. And and for us, you know, I, I think for some they're going to say, well, isn't that works? You know, you're keeping his commands and then you get from God. It's not works. There's a lot of work to do in the Christian life, but this is faith that leads to obedience. That's all it is. There's nothing complex about it. It's faith that says this word has to be obeyed. And when I read love is, the reality of that is it come, those are words that come from heaven that describe the very agape love of God. It's not something like a household appliance that I use every once in a while at my convenience to give me what I want. It's something that I have to throw my whole heart and soul into. And that's what God demands of us. It's a good place to put your heart and soul. I don't know where else you're going to put it that's going to be of any better value. Well, there it is. Uh, Half a message with a different closing. So whatever. (laughs) You get your money's worth here at Grace and Truth Ministry. So let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you so much that you have loved us so much, that you have provided for us an infinite amount of wisdom and reality of who you are in your word. And you have given us, dummies that we are, your Holy Spirit <clears throat> and made us new and designed us in your new, as your new creation to be able to hear and understand your word. May we see this fear, each of us, who have heard your voice today, Father, understand what fear of you is. And may it change us, as all of us need to grow in grace and knowledge. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.